Happy Monday, and thank you for tuning into the Bulwark Podcast, stepping in for Charlie Sykes. I'm your host, Jim Swift. Joining me today is former Missouri Senator John Danforth. Senator Danforth uh, was the 24th ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, He was a senator from Missouri from 1976 to 1995, and he was the 37th Attorney General of Missouri from 1969 to 1976. And interestingly, he was also a special counsel for the Department of Justice uh, investigating the siege on Waco in the Branch Davidians. Senator, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be with you, Jim. Thanks. Uh, as, a, as a fellow uh, Missourian, uh, I, I'm, I'm just so glad that you're here. And uh, in recent weeks, you've been making the rounds in the news because uh, Josh Hawley, uh, uh, junior senator from Missouri, as a former protege of yours, uh, has disappointed you. And you've spoken up saying that it was kind of one of the biggest mistakes in your life. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of a throwaway line because people say, well, last night I had the best dinner in my life, that kind of thing. But I really thought about it and uh, supporting Josh and I think being instrumental in his being in the Senate right now is the biggest mistake I've ever made. Now, that's not to say I haven't made a lot of mistakes. I certainly have. But this is the most consequential one because I, I really was um, part of creating something that has turned out just in a, in a very terrible way. So, yeah, I, I feel, um, I guess, a little bit like Dr. Frankenstein must have felt. It was, you know, a part of creating something that was, uh, that was really wrong. If, if I can play a clip for you, uh, George Will uh, recently kind of talked about uh, Holly and Cruz and, the, and their role in January 6th. Uh, I want to I roll this clip and uh, see, see what your reaction is. You have been scornful, brutal, brutal on Josh Holly and Ted Cruz. And those guys might miss Donald Trump a little bit. Lindsey Graham might miss him a little bit. Given what you've said about Holly and Cruz, called them seditionists, you know, what's to be done with them? Is anything to be done with them? Can anything be done with them? Should anything be done with them by the Republican Party or by those by the Senate? Well, nothing will be done because what are you going to do? You're going to take them off their committees. Now you can shun them in, in a sense, in an unofficial way. You cannot invite them to, into your states to campaign for you and you not raise funds with them. and You don't join them in sponsoring bills. There are lots of subtle ways. But Josh Hawley represents a big chunk of Missouri. Yeah. And uh, Ted Cruz just got reelected. He did. He's the guy who raised a ton of money. We don't need to tidy everything up. We have to let let this fire die down, let the embers get cold, take the ashes out and start over. But you do think those guys should wear the, like a, a lifetime, you know, mark of shame for their role in what happened. They tried to overturn an American election knowing they weren't going to do it, really. But they, they wanted to be seen to be trying. This is almost worse. Well, also knowing the election was free and fair they, on top of that. They wanted to be seen to be overturning an election that more than 60 court decisions with 90-some judges, many of them Republican appointees, some of them Trump appointees, had said was fine. Yeah. But they wanted to be seen pandering to people 
who believes something that these two senators knew to not be true. So, Senator, given what we know now, do you can do you agree with George Will about Josh Hawley being a seditionist? You know, I mean, that's such a strong word, but I, I think that I think what he did was to create an event and then promote the event and then encourage the event. Mm-hmm. And so the way Josh, the way Josh tries to reconstruct all of this is to say, well, all he was doing was speaking. Sure. And uh, now people are dumping on him because he was speaking. And it just has to do with, with uh, not tolerating a different point of view and that that's very dangerous. And that, in fact, this is something that infects the whole country, according to Josh. And um, everybody is trying to shut you down, the American people. And he, he said this in the piece that he wrote for the New York Post. He said that, you know, the, the elites or the conspiracy, which is corporations and big tech and the liberals, they're trying to control not just what you say, but what you think. And if this continues, you'll lose your jobs. You won't be able to order food at restaurants. If you go to the wrong church, you'll lose your job. I mean, literally, that is what he said in that piece. This is, this is the exaggeration that he was putting, putting forth. So according to Josh, it all has to do with how you think and what you say. And according to him, he is being punished for what he said. And that is just not correct. It's erroneous. The question is not what Josh said. It is what he did. And what he did was create an event because the certification of the Electoral College votes would have been a mere formality. You know, in the time that I was in the Senate, I never attended the certification because it was just, that's what it was. It was a formality. It lasted a matter of, I don't know, maybe an hour. There was nothing to it. But Josh, by saying, I'm going to object to this, he created an event. He said, this is going to be an event. And then he said, it's going to be decisive. And he did this repeatedly. He said, January the 6th is going to be the day of decision. This is not over until January the 6th. Then he, when January 6th came, that famous picture of him with his arm in the air, he encouraged all this. So I'm not, I wouldn't say that he, you know, was storming the battlements himself, but he was certainly lighting the match in the middle of the forest and, and creating the situation where all this occurred. Well, especially when Leader McConnell asked the members of his caucus not to do that. It seems to me that maybe he's sort of a fan of infinite regress and turning this into turtles all the way down. But I I have another clip for you. This is from 2019 from a Senate hearing where Senator Hawley is talking about uh, Peter Strzok and the Mueller investigation. And I'm not sure if you paid, unfortunately, as much close attention to it as I had to for my job. But uh, it's it's, it's a very interesting interesting, uh, statement that the senator makes here tried to overturn the results of a Democratic 
election. That's what's really gone on here. That's the story. That's why we're here today. I cannot believe that a top official of this government with the kind of power that these people had would try to, to exercise their own prejudices. And that's what this is. It's open, blatant prejudice. We try to use that in order to overturn a democratic election. And to my mind, that's the real crisis here. And it is a crisis because if there's not accountability, if this can go on in the United States of America, well, then my goodness gracious, we don't have a democracy anymore. What do you think accountability looks like in the case of Senator Josh Hawley? Um, is, is someone who, I mean, if, if you look at your background and his, you know, Josh Hawley ran for office at a very young age. You were elected as attorney general younger than he was. Um, is that kind of what attracted you to him as, as, as someone who is kind of a scion of Missouri politics? Well, what attracted, the, the first time I met Josh Hawley, um, I, I gave a lecture at Yale Law School, and both of us are graduates of Yale Law School, so I gave a lecture, and this was, I think, in 2005, maybe he was a third-year law student. And the then dean of the law school had a dinner party for me, and he sat me next to Josh, and he said, uh, I want you to get to know this guy. He, he is from your state. He's interested in politics. He's the head of the Federalist Society, so he's more conservative than most people at Yale Law School, but he's such a good person. So the initial introduction, I, I, understood that this is a good person. Then I got to know Josh, and he is exceptionally smart. Um, he is, he is obviously has had a, a good academic background. He wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt that was published by the Yale University Press when he was 28 years old. He clerked for uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And our early discussions had to do with really political philosophy. He was very much into what's called communitarianism, which is interesting, and it's kind of like Alexis de Tocqueville. And he was well-read on that, and we talked about it. And I, my thinking about Josh was, this is really a special person. He has so much ability and he would add so much to politics. And so I was very supportive of him when he ran for attorney general. And I was very much encouraging of him running for the U.S. Senate. And I did my best to drum up support for him, believing that he would bring to the Senate something special. And I said to Josh, um, I think I wrote him, a, I know I wrote him a letter right after his election. I said, do you have the opportunity to be for the Senate? Very much what Pat Moynihan was uh, in my day. Of course, Pat was uh, progressive and Josh is conservative. But you have the ability to add that kind of intellectual weight to the Senate. That was my view of him. That was why I was so high on him. It turns out that he adopted this populist line, which is um, a disease that's infected, I think, the country, but particularly Republican politics, which
which is this idea that, you know, you, the American people, are put upon and, and you have been mistreated and there is this conspiracy of liberals and corporations and big tech and they're out to get you and they're also out to get me and I'm your champion and I'm going to stand up to them. So it is very, very divisive. It, it is it, it is a style of politics that appeals to grievance and uh, creates division. And it's really the opposite of what politics is or what politics should be. So that's what he turned into, and that's been the big disappointment for me. It, it culminated in the creation of this uh, event on January the 6th. But it, it's more than that. It's a style that has infected the Republican Party, and it's it's very important to uh, to get away from that style. I'm thinking in the last 11 years, there. I mean, if not f- far long before that, there has been an element on the right where the right perceives themselves as outsiders and they are there to wreck institutional power. I mean, now it's manifested in QAnon and the deep state and all these other sorts of things. And, and you were way ahead of the game in 2005 writing opinion uh, piece in the New York Times uh, called In the Name of Politics, where you were concerned about conservatism and the Republican Party sort of getting in bed with uh, churches, uh, not just religious people, but churches themselves and sort of marrying the two institutions. You know, the Tea Party was there to go after Obamacare. And, you know, that sort of fizzled. Very few people from the Tea Party era still remain. Josh Hawley got there a little bit later. There's always a beneficiary of the journey. My question is, did Josh Hawley learn the wrong lesson of the people who came before him and made the decision, because he is as bright as he is, to just take a bigger bite of the apple? Well, I don't know the sequencing of what happened with him. I, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether the, the present-day Josh Hawley is what it, he's always been, and I just missed it or whether this is a development. He, he had a mentor at Stanford, a very famous historian named David Kennedy. And um, Kennedy really was very, very close to Josh and admired him a lot. And Kennedy has used the word to describe what happened as far as he was concerned. Kennedy says he was bamboozled, meaning, you know, well, that this is what he was, what Josh was, but he could have fooled Kennedy. I, I don't know when all this happened, but I do think this, I, I think, and this, to me, this is kind of, this is really an essential question in America. Is one of the purposes, one of the main purposes, maybe the purpose of the country, to hold ourselves together as one people? Or 
is are we just a bunch of fractured people and and is the point of politics to to be a wedge and to drive us apart now from the beginning the big challenge of america was is has been to hold ourselves together as one people even back when we were three four million americans and um it was then it was kind of north versus south and and agriculture versus mercantile and those kind of divisions but the constitution was written in order to contain within one country we the people one people all the the different interests now we are a hundred times larger than we were then and we have more divisions and that's the question. Do we hold ourselves together or do we divide? And religion, which is what I wrote about with the article you referred to, religion can be divisive. There's no doubt about it. People go to war over religion. Religion used in politics can be divisive. We have understood that from the beginning. That's the First Amendment to the Constitution. We understand how divisive religion can, can be, but the meaning of the word is the opposite. The word religion comes from the same root as the word ligament. It has to do with holding ourselves together. That's a very, very big issue. And uh, this, is, this is the problem now in American politics. We as a country seem to be falling apart. We've become so polarized we seem to be coming apart at the seams. And there is a political style that is designed to exacerbate that problem. And that's populism. And that's the, that's the style that Josh has adopted. We should, we should note for listeners, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you are an Episcopal minister, correct? Right. So, yeah. you know, we're, we, we, are, we are hearing, despite being Catholic, St. Louis, where did you go to high school? Yeah, that you, that you are speaking from a, from a very high authority, and one of the interesting things in, in listening to your response there is, I always tend to think uh, because uh, I was I was somebody who I, I volunteered for Jim Talent's campaign when I was in college. Uh, I voted for Jim Talent twice, and I was sort of Claire McCaskill as the devil. And when Josh Hawley got elected, uh, was, you know, personally for me at the time, ding dong, the witch is dead. I was kind of like, we, we finally did this. Missouri used to be a bellwether, and that, that kind of ceased to be the case uh, in, the, in, the mid, in, in the mid-aughts. But as Josh Hawley took office, I kind of got the sense that when it came to a lot of things, especially like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, which I'm not sure if you voted on, but it was... No, it was that probably, was after my time. But it was, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, right at the, it was, I think, slightly right after. I just, I, I've always gotten the sense he's playing the game of hide the ball, right? You know, the old Washington game of, of, of knowing better but pretending not to. Um, and I want to play for you a quick clip of uh, his reaction uh, to, I mean, despite four years of a lot of executive action from the Trump administration on his concerns uh, about what's been going on in the 
geez, I mean, we haven't even been in the Biden administration for two weeks, but just listen to it and let me know what you think. It's an attempt to, to basically govern the country uh, by executive fiat. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And the nature of it, too, look at what he's doing. These are radical policies he's pursuing. I mean, killing energy jobs, killing the energy sector in the United States, which is essentially what he's doing. Can you imagine how many good paying American jobs that's going to cost? I mean, and then you get the radical actions with women's sports and across the board. I mean, it's really it's breathtaking what he's trying to do on substance. It's breathtaking that he's trying to do it without any democratic debate or legislation. And I think it really shows you this is somebody who's got a pretty far left agenda and it's somebody who's intent on imposing it on the country. Right. So, Senator, do you do you think this is all just posturing for 2024? You know, I, um, so he he has a point when he's talking about how much is done by executive orders and about how um, Washington policy making has gotten um, polarized on a sort of a take it or leave it type of a politics. And, but I mean, what, so what to do about that? One thing that's happened is that the, the U.S. Senate, which was a place designed to work out differences, now is dysfunctional. So the when you go to school and you learn, okay, how does a bill become a law? Well, a bill becomes a law because it's introduced and then it's referred to committee and then there are hearings and then there's a markup and there are amendments and then it's voted on and if it goes to the floor there are more amendments and that happens both in the house and the senate so there's a lot of give and take and there's a lot of ability to participate and there's a lot of ability to bring whatever ideas you have into the deliberation and see what happens. So you can offer an amendment in committee and maybe you win, maybe you lose, but at least you have a say and at least you have input. Now that, that whole system has fallen apart right now. So the committee system really doesn't function and the bills are written either at the White House and you're seeing this with the COVID relief legislation. The bills are written by the in the White House, and the question is, are they going to be enacted on the floor or defeated, take it or leave it? So this whole business of the legislative process of, is creating sausage. That's the way it was designed. It's good to create sausage if you believe that it's good to have a system that's able to incorporate it into it all kinds of difference opinion and try to work those, those differences out. But that's broken down now. And in that sense, Josh is correct. Now, um, what's happened now with Republicans, now you've got the 10 Republican senators who want to participate in the COVID, in the COVID legislation, which I think is a very healthy thing that they want to do that. But by and large, what you have now is a Democratic president, Democratic control of both houses of Congress, the president writing the legislation, and it's there, and the, 
then the question is, well, the Democrats going to just pass anything to do reconciliation? Are they going to get rid of the filibuster, whatever? So the ability of minorities to chime in and be part of the action is pretty much gone right now. And that, that is, that's a serious blow. So if you wanted to really try to figure out how we're going to bridge these sharp differences in our country, one of the main things we could do is to restore the uh, regular order of the Senate and restore the whole legislative process. So uh, I have two, I have two questions. You can answer them as, as quickly or as shortly as you'd like. Uh, the first is, do you think that the Republicans Tea Party era insistence on eliminating earmarks contributed to the death of regular order and uh, the appropriations process? Because my answer personally would be yes, but I'd be interested in yours. It could have, it could have played some role, but I, I think that the main thing was that, okay, what, what happened, and this was sort of in the Harry Reid day, uh, Republicans thought, okay, we're going to make the Democrats vote on um, embarrassing things. So they sort of no-win votes, and we're going to offer all these amendments and votes and embarrass them. And Reed took the position, no, you're not going to do that. I, Harry Reid, am going to write the legislation, and it's going to go to the floor, and by uh, parliamentary procedures, I'm going to shut out amendments on the floor, and this is the way it's going to be done. And that's what's happened now. It, it's 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 not a it's not a system that's dynamic. It's a system which is, as I say, take it or leave it. When you watch Schoolhouse Rock, they don't tell you about filling the tree, right? Yeah. Well, that's what that's what Reed did. He filled the tree, you know. He said so, and you can do that. You can shut out, you can shut out um, amendments, and you know. And from the standpoint of the minority, it can filibuster. It can slow things down. You saw this during the Trump administration when, as soon as Trump took office as president. This movement started, and they called it the resistance with the capital R. And the idea was to prevent absolutely anything from happening. And I'm, I'm sure that there are Republicans now in the Senate who would just as soon have absolutely nothing happen. And um, so there we are. Do you, do you think, Senator, that regardless of whatever theory one, you know, whether it's you or me or a listener believes about how we've gotten to this point. Do you think we've gotten to a point where Republicans have stopped caring about the business of governing? Well, um, I hope not. And, you know, as I say, these 10 Republican senators who now are going to meet with President Biden and they have their ideas on COVID relief. So they, what they want to do is to have a block of senators who, um, who can participate in the process. And there's great hope in doing that. We did that, by the way, we did that back in, way back in my day, 2001, civil rights legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1991, 
where that we had a block of nine Republican senators, and we inserted ourselves in the process right in the middle of it, where there are strong views on each side, and we said, okay, we're going to try to work this out, and we did, and we created the legislation. So there is precedent for doing that, and it's very, very promising. It would be even better if there were a, a caucus within the Senate, bipartisan. There wouldn't have to be a lot of people, eight, ten people, equally divided, Democrats and Republicans, who would be committed simply to making the Senate work. That would be a very, very big deal if they would do that. If we could pivot here for a second, let's, and we can talk about Missouri politics as much as I, I love to talk about Missouri politics. Um, but I, I, I want to ask you a, a question more on the national aspect of things. In 2017, you were quoted as saying, Trump is exactly what the Republicans are not in the Washington Post. Do you think now, almost four years later, whether you are right or wrong about that, is, is what we're seeing in today's GOP contradictory to what you what what you said then, or I mean, look, I, I I'm I'm a wishful thinker as much as, as the next guy. Are are have things changed since then that it that might change no, what your quote was, or no, no, was, no, was it always I, that way? Yeah, no, and again, you know, I mean, so what is the history of the Republican Party? Okay, the Republican Party was the party of the union union. When the Republican Party was created, the question was whether we were one country or a bunch of states, and whether the bunch of states would be able to secede from the Union. We were the party upholding things together. We were the party of the Union. And that is our tradition. That is our founding principle. It is the opposite of the populist. Uh, way of doing things. It is the opposite of trying to divide, trying to pick us apart. So I said in that particular op-ed back in whenever it was, 2017, I guess, I, I said that Trump is the most divisive person in American politics since George Wallace. I believe that. I believe it now. He, that was his style to divide, to create in the minds of the people that they are against you. That this is the good guys and the bad guys, and I am your champion against them. And that's a divisive style. That is the populist style. It remains the style for uh, some Republicans, maybe a lot of them right now, and it, it is not consistent with our history. If we can pivot back to Missouri for a second, I don't know if you're still a Missouri resident or, or not. Sure, I, of course, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I, live in, I live in Virginia and have since I left Missouri. Great state. We'll, we'll, take you, we'll be happy to take you back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, uh, it's, it's, it's. I, I would love to move back, uh, but you know, I'm not sure what I would do there, given the current state of the Republican Party. There, I see like people I went to college with are state reps trying to name I-55, the Rosa Parks Freeway, take that portion of I-55 and rename it after Donald Trump. I see Governor Parson and 
I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this because obviously before Governor Parson took office, we had Eric Greetens. And I wanted to check to see with you on this. I mean, I know you're you're very concerned about Hawley, who kind of tracks in the mold of your career as a former attorney general and a former senator. Uh, I don't think Hawley's going to make it to you an ambassador unless Donald Trump Jr. becomes president in 2024. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? Missouri used to be a bellwether state. What happened? Yeah, yeah it did, and and um, so the idea was that you know if you're going to a new election, okay, there were maybe what 25 percent, let's say, of voters who were going to vote for any Republican, and we were a Democratic state in those days, so maybe 30, 35% going to vote for any Democrat. So the idea was to try to compete for the center, for people who were reasonably independent, relatively independent, and try to get their votes. Well, now the center is gone. And the political action now in, in our state, and I, I think in the country as a whole, a lot of it is in the primary elections, not in the general election. I never had any problem with primary elections. Right now, I would. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't know if I would survive a primary or not, but it would be very tough to get through a primary because in primary elections today, it's all, do you appeal to the base of your party, to the, the hardliners of your party? So there's a rush to the polls of American politics, and it's, it's the opposite of what it was. In, in your 2005 New York Times op-ed, I mean, that was one of the things you were concerned about, about what people in Missouri were doing to sort of tie the party. I mean, this, this kind of follows on the Caro Rove strategy of of using ballot initiatives for gay marriage, uh, stem cell research. And I think, I, if I recall, you remember Terry, you mentioned Terry Schiavo yeah. uh, and other sorts of issues that, you know, to people of faith, you know, you as a minister, I as a serious practicing Catholic uh, do take seriously. Um, but, you know, as, 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 as the, you know, the, the roads of the Republican party and, uh, people of faith or the institutions of people of faith kind of became ever closer and intertwined. Um, you know, it, se it seems sort of hard to undo that. So what does that spell for the future of the Republican party? If not only are those two so severely intertwined that you probably can't undo them, at least in the short term. Uh, but, you know, now we have to deal with QAnon and some of these quacky conspiracy theories. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, religion can be, as I said, I mean, the meaning of the word has to do with holding things together. And so the, it's important, I think, for people of faith to focus on what, what do we have to say that, that is unifying. And one thing we have to say is that, um, you know, that my political positions are not religious positions. I'm not God. This is, it's just, politics is just politics. And it's not ultimate. It's not, it's not religious in the sense of, of ultimate concern, as, as the, the theologian Paul Tillich said. 
instead. So humility is a big part of what the message should be, and also understanding that other people, people with whom you disagree, are made in the image of God, and they deserve respect. So that is a message that religion can convey. <laughs> but there's a, the opposite kind of message also, and it is to kind of search out the most controversial, divisive, intense issues that there are, like, for example, gay marriage, or like with the, the day, the Terry Schiavo situation, you know, they're keeping somebody artificially alive who's on her way out, those kinds of things, and just magnifying them, blowing them out of proportion, making them the big deal. And uh, that's what happened to religion and politics. It became very, very divisive and very much um, determinative of how people voted. Do you think that there's any hope that uh, the Republican Party can heal thyself and attract folks that they've lost? You know, people like the ones who are probably listening to this podcast? I, I think we have to... Um... I, I think we have to disengage ourselves from Trump and Trumpism and, and just make a, a, a clear break. Now, some people say, well, we, we can't win without Donald Trump. But I think we've shown we can't win with Donald Trump as a national party. We can't win. He, it's not a winning proposition to be a Trumpian party. And so I think we have to do our best to understand and empathize with people who voted for Trump, people who do feel that the country has passed them by, that they've been treated as deplorables and, and uh, that they feel threatened. We, we have to understand that. We have to, we have to identify with those people but not with the Trump style. We have to disengage from that. Think about, okay, what's, what's the evidence that Trumpism doesn't work? Well, in, the, in, the, in his 2016 election, he lost the popular vote by 3 million. In 2020, he lost the popular vote by more than 7 million. It's going in the wrong direction. He, how, how could we possibly have lost two seats in Georgia? And the answer is Donald Trump. So this doesn't work. And I think we have to disengage. Now all of the pressure is coming from the Trumpians. They say, well, if you're like Liz Cheney, then we're going to go out to Wyoming and we're going to oppose you. If you're one of the 10 who voted for impeachment in the House, we're going to primary you. And I think that it's very important for what I would call traditional Republicans to fight back and to say, okay, we are going to maybe primary people who are the Trumpians. 
So, yeah, I think we just have to disengage from it. I don't think it's going to heal itself. I'm in 100% agreement with you on that. Uh, if you, if, if, if Josh Hawley won his primary and Claire McCaskill challenged him, would you vote for Claire McCaskill over Josh Hawley? I, I would never vote for Josh, you know. I mean, I think I could take the last election. Okay, so what was the choice in the last election? It was Trump versus Biden. Well, I think a lot of people thought, well, that's a terrible choice. Because yeah. we've got the style of Trump on one hand, and we've got the policies of Biden, which we think are pretty far to the left on the other hand. So that's, that is just not a good choice for us to make. So the, my, the hope would be, my hope would be maybe Josh would himself have a primary opponent that I could vote for. Well, as, as much as I would like to see that, I mean, I come from Ohio, a former bellwether state that is now staunchly right. I lived in Missouri, our former mutual state, you know, which is now pretty far to the right. And I now live in Virginia, where our Republican Party uh, has just kind of thrown all logic to the wind and has not won a statewide election in over a decade. And now I'm looking at uh, places like Arizona, where I worked for an Arizona senator. Now both of those seats are Democratic. I'm looking at Georgia, where both of those seats are Democratic. Uh, in Texas, where they have a former Florida one-term congressman who is basically like QAnon borderline. And I'm looking at what these, you know, the South has always been a, a huge portion of, of, of what the GOP sends its, you know, members to Congress. And then we have coronavirus. And when people aren't working at home and people are kind of doing their own diaspora and moving across the country... I'm I'm a little con I mean I'm I'm not going to say I'm exactly concerned but uh we're going to see people moving from these urban centers like Washington, New York, San Francisco and other places that are like super expensive to live in and to do your job in and if they know they can do it remotely and their employers will let them I just I'm not sure I see what the future is in a lot of these states when they've tacked so far to the right with Kelly Ward in Arizona and Allen West in Texas and uh, in Georgia, what we've seen there. I mean, I would say Georgia has been the best of, of those three states I mentioned with Brad Raffensperger, but it's uh, it, it doesn't seem promising to me. I'm not confident that the Republican Party is going to change in those states and offer a message. And I, I just want to get your sense of things. I mean, do you think that this Republican Party is going to look at the 2020 elections like they did when Mitt Romney lost and conduct an autopsy and think about how they can start appealing in different places, or are they just going to play the demographics and redistricting game? Well, I, I think the problem is again the, the the primaries. You know, the person who's the farthest out there is likely to win the primaries, particularly in the part of the country that's still relatively Republican. But our party is no longer a national party. It just isn't. I mean, think about this. When I was in the Senate, and that, granted it was a long time ago, but when I was in the Senate, the following states had at least one, and some of them two Republican senators, okay? New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, 
Maryland, Virginia, and on the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California. None of those states now has a single Republican member of the U.S. Senate. It's all gone. So we have really, on the current trend for our party, we are not a national party, and we will not be a national party if we remain Trumpian. Senator Danforth, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we, we hope to have you uh, back on the podcast again sometime soon. Thanks, Jim. Good to be with you. Thanks again, and thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.